This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, December 18th, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Well, good morning. We are in the book of Genesis, chapter 34, and this is where the Lord has us. It may be kind of a strange passage to have at this time of year, but it's typical what we do. I won't preach Genesis 35 on Christmas Eve. It won't even be a full sermon of any kind, but we're in 34 today. So I'm going to read the whole chapter, and you may be surprised by what the Lord has to say to us through it. Verse 1 in chapter 34 begins like this. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. She loved, he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And so Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. And now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as a great a bride price and a gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to the one who is uncircumcised, for that will be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you'll become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we'll take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone." Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. And now he was the most honored of all his father's house. And so Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters only on this one little condition. Will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people? When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. <gasps> Will not their livestock though, and their property, and all their beasts be ours? Well, let us agree with them and they'll dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. On the third day, when they were Really sore. Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all of the males. 
They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, and they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives and all those in the houses they captured and plundered. And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my house. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is God's Word. Now, it's probably not you expected this week. As I was studying for this, many commentators limit their comments on this chapter. Some skip it literally all together. Um, most argue that it's actually best taught in the context of a classroom, and few probably would preach it on a Sunday morning, and without doubt, most would not do so on a week before Christmas. But this is where the Lord has us. I think it's important, and I will continue to remind us, because I firmly believe in the authority of God's Word. And I never want us to forget what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, to a young pastor named Timothy, where he said, all Scripture, in the Greek it means all, all Scripture is breathed out by God and useful for training and to equip us for every good work. And he later wrote to the church in Rome, that all of the Old Testament was written down for our instruction, specifically that through the Scriptures we would find encouragement and have hope. And more than that, in no less authority than our Lord Jesus Himself, when He was resurrected and walking on the road to Emmaus, He taught two disciples how, beginning with Moses, which would include Genesis, through the prophets and the writings, how the entire Bible was written about him. In other words, despite its rather worldly darkness, Genesis 34 is designed to lead us to the light of the world, Jesus himself. You might be surprised how we get there. No one looks good in this chapter. No one. Everyone looks bad. The people of the world and the people of God are both equally wicked in this story. And even though they would claim to believe different things, both pagans and patriarchs share in the same defilement. Even in his silence, which God says nothing in this chapter. Even in his silence, I believe he reveals, if you will, a very stark contrast between himself and all of mankind. Believer or not. And if nothing else from this chapter, we see some very plain truths that God is good and men are bad. That God is just and men are unjust. That God is gracious and men are merciless. That God intends to restore and man intends to defile. And that includes everyone. See, we live in a world full of defilement because of sin. 
We are sinful. And to say that we are sinful means, among other things, that we are both broken and rebellious. In other words, we are defiled by birth. We are born into sin by nature, but we also are sinful by choice. It's impossible for us to go through this world, to come into this world, without defiling someone, ourselves, or being defiled by someone. When we experience defilement in our lives, whatever form that might take, and it doesn't have to be as dark and as extreme as what we read here, but any kind of pain in our life, any kind of hurt in our life, or when we see others experience similar defilement, we rightly desire justice. We rightly desire something to be done. Someone do something. Someone make this right. And that's what justice is. In the simplest terms, it's, it's the restoration to wholeness. It's the restoration to rightness or righteousness. Whether that's someone who is impoverished, you know, like they shouldn't be hungry. Or someone is dying and, or diseased, like they should be healed. Or someone has done something wrong and they should be punished. See, we desire, and rightfully so, victims to be renewed and victimizers to be punished. And yet, many times, our calls for others to be brought to justice are anger-filled reactions. We cry for severe punishment. That should be punished. That's wrong. And then ironically, when the same kinds of defilements are revealed in our own lives, when we commit the same kind of crime that we cry to be punished, we don't cry for punishment. We Give me radical love. Give me forgiveness. Give me understanding. Give me grace. We live in a world, and when I say that, I'm not talking about the world out there. We're so convinced of the problems outside of us. We live in a world full of victims and victimizers who are both unwilling to see their sin. Victimizers refuse to see their own sin and they feel justified in their violence. And victims refuse to see their own sin and feel justified in their vengeance. And in truth, we're not one or the other. We're actually both. So you can pick your poison in this chapter. They're all bad. And we're all of them in different ways. James 1, particularly verse 20, tells us that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. And what Genesis 34 reveals is pretty simple. That left alone... Men can only produce unrighteousness. Even when they try to do the right thing, they still fall short. And we get to this place, which is 
I think where 34 leads us to see that the only one who can actually produce the rightness or the righteousness that God requires, whether that be perfect love or perfect justice, the only one who can produce that is God Himself. And that is why 34 shows us the need for the manger. We'll get there. But it shows us the need for it. Let's break down this story. As we look at 34, we have to remember what came before this. The events of 34 probably occur in part because Jacob lives in the wrong place. Now, remember many chapters ago, Jacob left after deceiving and cheating his father and his brother, spends 20 years away, gets a bunch of wives and a bunch of kids, and then returns and and reconciles with his brother. And after reconciling his brother, he decides to settle with his family and all of his livestock and all of his kids outside the booming city of Shechem. It's a Canaanite city. And in many ways, he has made his home in a place that will make him comfortable. He's built barns for his animals. He's built a home for himself. And eventually, he builds an altar indicating he's settling here. And it's very comfortable for him but it's made his family incredibly vulnerable. And more than likely, because we'll see at the very beginning of Genesis 35, more than likely, he has settled in a place he's not supposed to be. The first verse of Genesis 35 is God telling him, now leave and go to Bethel. Implying like you should have in the first place. Meanwhile, you have Genesis 34 kind of insert as this dark chapter where I believe Jacob should not be. It's interesting in Psalm 8.4, Psalm 8 is one of the Psalms of David. I love the Psalms. They're very raw and honest and, and beautiful and troubling at times. But he asks this question in, in crying out to God. He says, God, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? He basically says, God, why, why do you think about me at all? Why does God think about us? You know, God thinks about us. God knows us. God knows the number of hairs on our head, the, the number of breaths we will breathe. He knows exactly what's going on in our lives at any moment and what will go on in our life in every moment. He thinks about us. You would think he has a few other things to think about. Like making sure the earth continues to rotate, making sure we have enough oxygen to breathe, making sure the birds get fed, the trees grow. Like, and he thinks about us uniquely, individually, all of us. And it's striking how little we think about him. We certainly don't have the responsibilities that God does. How little we, we really think about him and some of the decisions we make how we use our time, how we use our energy, how we spend our money, where we recreate, where we live, what job we take. Do we, do we consider those things? So when Jacob decides where to live, I don't think he thinks twice about it. A guy who has heard God speak to him. One commentator noted that Jacob has probably followed his heart in finding his home. For after all, home is where the heart is, right? That phrase... 
He says, perhaps it's better said that home is where the Lord is. He's not chosen to live where He does because this is where I can best serve the Lord. This is where the Lord will be most honored. This is how I can be used greatly by the Lord. He hasn't even asked. He's thinking of himself, what suits himself, what is best for himself, even at the expense of his family, we see. Dinah is the one, at this point, and only daughter of Jacob. She has 11 brothers, which is probably an interesting house to grow up in. Perhaps she's lonely as a 14, 15-year-old girl. And so she begins to wander into the nearby city. The text says that she went out to see the women of the land. And the Hebrew here indicates a little hint of impropriety, meaning Dinah probably snuck out like a teenager. And culturally, girls of marrying age, which Dinah is, They weren't even allowed to leave the tents of their people without a chaperone. And so more than likely, she's left. Her parents don't know. Her brothers don't know. And she's just kind of wandering, exploring, investigating, looking. And I do not believe that she's responsible for what happens to her ultimately. But in some sense, she willfully walks towards the world into a very unsafe situation. And she doesn't tell her parents likely because she knows she's not supposed to be there. And while in the city, the prince of the city, the prince of the land, the son of the king, sees Dinah among the women of the city. is like, bam! She's cute! And it says he seizes her. Sends his guards, perhaps, bring that girl here. And he has some kind of sexual relations with her and he humiliates her. He defiles her. And although the language actually isn't clear, it's not specific, scholars and Christian and Jewish disagree on on what exactly the nature of the defilement is here. It's likely that the prince does force himself passionately and physically on her in a disgraceful way. And yet, we see later that she remains in the palace. Maybe she's under duress. Maybe she's forced to stay there. And we later read that the prince makes every effort to marry her. He says his his soul, the Scriptures say, is attached to her. He loves her. This is a very different um, experience than what we see later in Scripture, which... Other rapes are recorded. David's daughter, Tamar, and in that experience, there's great shame for the victim. There's also great hatred from the victimizer. There's not love. There's not some kind of, let's get married. It's much darker. So regardless of the exact details, the Scripture indicates that Dinah is defiled Physically, emotionally, socially. And there's plenty of responsibility to go around. The world is responsible for Dinah's defilement, particularly Shechem. The father is responsible for 
her defilement. Even Dinah contributes by being in the wrong place. But the point is this, even with the best intentions, even with the best fences up and the best protections, defilement is unavoidable in a defiled world full of defiled people. That's what we live in. There's not like, well, the undefiled people live over here. And the defiled ones, that's not it. The world is defiled and it's full of defiled people. And the question is not, will defilement occur? Will pain ensue? Will difficulty or, or people be hurt? But that will happen. The question is, how will we respond when that comes into our life or in the lives of others? You see, how we respond to a given hurt, pain, regardless of the depth, reveals the kind or level of maturity we're at. The fact that it happens, the feelings attached to it happening are unavoidable, but our responses to those reveal much about ourselves. In these verses, we see there are three very different but very sinful responses to this experience. One is from what I'll call unashamed unbelievers. And then you have a passive believer, we'll call him dad. And then you have the brothers, who I will describe as immature believers. The first, in responding to defilement, the unbeliever responds with sinful indifference. What does that mean? Well, seeming in an effort to make the best of a bad situation, the king comes to Jacob, so dad comes to dad, with a marriage proposal from his son to Jacob's daughter, Dinah. But you see that neither before, during, or after that discussion does the king or the son or anybody from the city acknowledge wrongdoing. No one ever says what happened to Dinah was wrong. That it was unjust. That it was unfortunate. On the contrary, they don't make any apology whatsoever. They make a marriage proposal. They look at it as a joyous occasion. The progressive man of the city comes to the nomadic man of the field and he brings no sense of morality with him. There's no offer of justice because there's no need for justice in his view. You see, that's where the world is. The world is indifferent towards sin. On the contrary, what we see is God's standards of righteousness. They are lost in the world because they embrace unrighteousness as a new standard. It's not that they're just like, oh, that's not bad. They say, no, actually, that's quite good. What we see is that it's not just they're merely indifferent towards sin. They actually institutionalize sin. That's the nature of the world there. That's the nature of the world now. I mean, how many things in our world today are covered up, sinful things covered up because they're redefined and even labeled as love? And isn't that what he's doing? Like, this girl has been defiled, this girl has been wronged, and they go, hey, my son loves her. This is love. 
The defilement of Dinah in the view of the world is not sinful. It's just a loving experience of youth. And they want what they want. And the way they want it, we'll just call it this and not call it bad. They never call it bad. Sinful indifference. But sadly, the believer response is no better. The father, the passive believer we'll call him, responds to defilement with sinful silence. And if you're a mom or you're a wife or you're a daughter or a woman, Jacob's response should shock you. And if you're a dad or you're a husband or a brother or a man, it should anger you. The Bible says that Jacob keeps his peace knowing that the boys are in the field. No one's like, hmm, my boys will be here soon. Right? But what you see in the behavior after that is Jacob's silent. Worse than that, you see that he doesn't plan to do anything. In fact, he doesn't say anything at all the entire time when his boys show up they take over the negotiations. Jacob is probably you know, over 100 years old. A mature, hypothetically, wise old man who knows how to protect those in his care. He leaves it to some 20-year-olds to figure out. And the 20-year-olds do all the negotiations. Shameful behavior from a dad. It doesn't even say he ever gets angry. Jacob never mentions Dinah's name the entire time. Never talks about her. He says nothing to Hamor and Shechem. And he abandons everything. The next time we hear from Jacob is at the end of the chapter after his sons went on a murderous rampage. And we see through his words what he actually really cares about. Never mentioning Dinah. In verse 30 of chapter 34, here's what Jacob says. And tell me what he cares about. You have brought trouble upon me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And they gather themselves against me and attack me, and I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Me, 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 I, my, me. I don't care about Dinah. I don't care about you. I don't care how it affects me. That is not a godly father or a godly man. It's a man who's thinking only about himself. Very contrasting to our Lord and Savior who thought about everyone but himself. And then you have the boys. And there's part of us, I've got two daughters and three boys. And if you have kids or if you have brothers, there's part of you that thinks, Get them, boys! Yeah! That's what I like to see. My boy's standing up. Now, mind you, the father is absent. Major screw up. And there is a goodness in the attitude of the boys. But Jacob is completely walk, he completely walks away. He's got these 20-year-old, what I'll call immature believers who respond to defilement, not with sinful indifference, not with sinful silence, but with sinful anger. As one commentator noted, 
when the spiritual leaders are indifferent or silent and fail to act decisively about the world's defilements, then those who are immature may profane the faith by their misguided zeal. You hear what that's actually about? It's what does my response not do to protect this person? Not what does this response do to stand up for my own honor or the honor of my family? What does this response do to ensure that the name of our Lord is not profaned? You see, the boys, when they hear about it, what happens to the sister, the Bible says they got indignant and angry. And you go, yes, they should. We should. What happens to Dinah is inexcusable, it is ugly, and it should be condemned, and it should create in us an anger. The boy's instinct to desire justice is godly. Something needs to be done. This is wrong. That desire is godly, but their methods for bringing that justice about is ungodly. They basically set up Hamor, his son, and all the people of the city by lying to them. They lie to them about their intentions. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll agree to your bride price. Here's the dowry. We want everyone to get circumcised. We'll give Dinah to Shechem. We'll give you our own daughters. We'll share land. We'll become one people if you become like us and you mark your bodies as we have. Circumcise every one of your males. Now, there are two problems with this. One is that you have pagans taking on a sign that God gave to Abraham to mark his promises, to mark the fact that they were a people who put faith in God's promises to give them land, to give them offspring, to bless the world. These pagans are not believing that. They're not putting their faith in God. They're not trusting the very promises that actually will require them to give up all their land. On the contrary, as you read in verse 23, Hamor the king, as he goes to the gate, and tells him, hey, let's do this. I know it's circumcised. I'm painful. But, he says, we're getting all their land. All their livestock. He's like, look, I know we're kind of getting religious, but we're going to get their stuff. But worse than that, worse than being driven by really greed to get his son a wife and to get more livestock and more daughters to marry off to his sons, you have angry, immature believers using God's righteous covenant sign to cover up an unrighteous act. What do you mean by that? Sadly, the misuse of God's Word and the abuse of God's way are often used by the immature believers to justify their sin. They twist God's Word and they use God's ways and they're like, yeah, they cover up what actually is wrong and they, they call it righteous. They call it religious. And it's certainly honorable that they want justice for the defilement, but they are achieving it by having to defile justice itself. And as I said earlier, the Apostle James warns us that our 
anger at justice or injustice, I should say, it reflects something good. An instinct in us to say, that's bad, that needs restoration, that needs punishment. But if we're not careful, we can have a bad response. Our anger can go wrong. The Bible gives us permission in Ephesians chapter 4, even commands us to be angry, to feel angry. If you're not angry at this kind of defilement in your life or in the life of others, something's wrong. You should be angered by this. The boy's instinct and, and even their feelings are good. The feelings aren't the issue, it's the response because even in Ephesians 4 it says, be angry and don't sin. That's what distinguishes righteous anger from unrighteous anger, at least one of the things. It's easy for anger to go wrong. And sometimes our anger goes wrong when we get mad or angry at things that just don't matter. Now this matters. This is worthy of being angry at because it's actual sin. Righteous anger gets angry or reacts against actual sin. But the reality is, much of our anger or anger responses aren't getting mad at actual sin, but at personal preferences of things we have liked that haven't come to pass. Not sin. And how do you know? Well, more often than not that our anger, it's going wrong because we're thinking about ourselves. My rights, my concerns, my needs, my hurts, not offense against God. Not dishonoring God's name. You see, righteous anger always focuses on the offense to God's name. And dishonoring God and His glory. Not just my reputation. But our anger also goes wrong when we respond to actual wrong the wrong way. Righteous anger responds righteously. And what you see that though Dinah's experience and defilement is, is major, in this story it's the minor issue. The major issue is the murderous revenge of the brothers. It seems as if God wants us to remember how dangerous it is to make a fuss about the wrongs against other people while ignoring our wrong responses. So after the men of the city all circumcise themselves, which is a painful thing, Simeon and Levi come knocking. Hey guys! And they come walking to the door. Hey, right? And they just whoosh, kill them. They kill every single man in the city. But they don't stop there. They don't just kill Shechem, the guilty. They kill the king. They kill every other man. And then they plunder the entire city. They take all of the women. They take all of the children. They take all of the livestock in the stables and in the fields. They take all of their wealth. They go through their homes and take everything they can take. In response to the rape of their sister, they rape the city. And this isn't justice Restoring righteousness where they found unrighteousness. This is actually vengeance piling more unrighteousness 
upon more unrighteousness. And then suddenly their father's interested. Right? He shows up and says, oh, look at the new problems you created for me. For me. And their boys, his boys are a little snarky in their response. In the last verse of the text, it says, well, should our sister, not your daughter, should our sister be treated like a prostitute, Dad? Man. And maybe they should get in the face of their dad a little bit. But should our sister be treated like a prostitute? Now, if we just step back for a second and try to really see what happened, that's, that's not what happened. Dinah wasn't treated like a prostitute, though it makes it sound as if they're trying to justify their behavior. I mean, they may have easily said, like, Dad, didn't you, didn't you see what happened? You did nothing, Dad. But what they're really trying to say is, we had no choice but to act this way, Dad. They were treating our sister like a prostitute, and we had to do this. We had no choice. This was the only path we could have followed. It's interesting when, when we get into a situation where we feel defiled, or we see someone defiled, we can easily be tempted to believe that a defiled response is the only kind of response we can do. Let's not forget, because again, we get stuck in our own little worlds and we're like, my situation is so much harder than yours. This is, I had no choice. You don't know how hard this is. Let us remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.13, that no temptation or trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, regardless of the kind of defilement, the depth of defilement, or the pain of the situation you're in, silence and sin are never the only options. Silence and sin are never the only options. The question is, how can we respond in a way that's godly? And this is where we connect it to the manger. You see, I said earlier that we live in a world full of victims and victimizers who are both unable and unwilling to see their sin. You see, victimizers refuse to see their own sin and they feel justified in their violence. And victims refuse to see their own sin and they feel justified in their vengeance. And in truth, we are not one or the other. We are both. We are both. The only way we're going to be able to respond justly is for us to acknowledge that fact. And when you acknowledge that fact, you are able to experience the restoration that Jesus can provide. You see, few of us will identify as victimizers. Oh, I'm not, I'm not a victimizer. But all of us stand ready to claim victim status. We may not say that. We may not 
tell people that. But many of us like to live as victims. We choose to live as victims, believing that we have been hurt way more by others than I ever have hurt anybody else. All of my pain is out there, coming in here. And my situation is harder than anyone else's. Because of that, any level of help, like when you've adopted that mentality, I'm not sure who can help you. Because I'm not sure whatever, like unless they can fix that problem that you believe is so, you know, grand and great and more difficult, like I don't think anyone can truly fix it. See, much like Jacob's sons, you believe that it, this is so like someone or something needs to die in order for this to be fixed. But what you've forgotten is that someone did die. Jesus died as the one true victim. Okay. There was only one victim that ever lived in this planet. And his name was Jesus. Because he's the only one who didn't sin against anyone. And he came and he died as the one true victim so that we don't ever have to live like one. And then there's the victimizers, right? Which I am too. Maybe you won't freely admit that. I have hurt people. <gasps> Cats out of the bag. I've sinned against people. I've sinned against my family. I've sinned against my wife. I have sinned. I have hurt people. I will know you long enough, probably let you down. And you should be able to say the same to me. And though we don't feel like victimizers, if you're on the opposite side of that, of being let down or hurt, like you'll feel like a victim. So like, you're a victimizer. But see, God is not like sinful Jacob, who is nowhere to be found until it serves him. See, God, very differently, is a perfect father who is present and ready to serve everyone but himself. See, God the Father is grieved. He is grieved and He is angry at defilement in this world. He's angry that His children are defiled. He's angry that we defile ourselves. He's angry that we defile one another. But He is not silent and nor is He sinfully reactive. Though justified, he doesn't unleash his wrath. He sends his son. His sinless, undefiled son. That it's easier at this time of year to, to, to see the sinlessness in the baby Jesus, right? All babies are innocent and sinless. It just feels that way. He sends his sinless, undefiled son and he subjects him to defilement for 30 years. Like, Jesus didn't show up as an adult. He spent 30 years in a defiled world full of defiled people. And he endures over those 30 years countless injustices. 
in order to make those he loves whole again. He not only takes on the role of the victim, he takes the punishment of the victimizer. And as both the victim and the substitute for the victimizer, he becomes the only one who who can offer hope to both. See, it's not difficult to see ourselves as victims. That's very natural for us. Because we don't feel like we do anything wrong and others are doing wrong against us. But until you see yourself also as a victimizer, not just of others, but of God Himself, you won't understand the Gospel. You see, our defilement, which is so clear in Genesis 34, is what makes our salvation and our rescue necessary. And His defilement is what makes our salvation possible. That's what makes the Gospel so stinking radical. Do we, do we see that the one who has been offended, the one who has been dishonored, the one who is truly the victim comes down and takes the place of the victimizer. The true victim came down and didn't judge the victimizer. He died for the victimizer. And so for those who have defiled themselves or been defiled by others, I, I, know, I, I know there's shame in that. There's hurt in that. There's pain in that. Know that Jesus, more than anybody else, understands. And He stands ready to restore and cleanse you and heal you so you don't have to live as a victim anymore. And for those who, if we're honest, have been defilers, for those who have hurt and defiled others, and maybe you haven't defiled as bad as we see in Genesis 34, but guess what? As I said, even our righteous acts fall short of what God expects. For those of us who have been defilers and we feel the weight of guilt for our actions, we feel that we have just fallen short, we feel like just such a failure, I haven't lived, I haven't been a good dad, I haven't been a good mom, what? Jesus stands ready to restore you and forgive you. The Gospel shows us that the only one who can produce the righteousness that God requires, the perfect love that is necessary and the perfect justice that we know needs to take place is God Himself. Genesis 34 reveals the need for the manger. The manger is where our restoration begins. And the cross is where Jesus says is finished. We constantly talk about this theme of restored to restore. And until you can come to the place which it's easy to say, I'm hurt. I've been hurt in this world. I've been hurt by living in a defiled world full of defiled people. But until you come to the place to acknowledge that I am participating in that defilement, Only then will you be able to receive the forgiveness and the healing and the freedom and the new identity that Jesus gives you. 
where he says, you're not defined by what's happened. You're not defined by what you've done. You're not defined by what you haven't done. You're defined by what Jesus has done. Only then can you experience the restoration towards wholeness, which is certainly not overnight and I'm perfect, but is the beginning of a process. And part of that process is I am now equipped to bring restoration to others. And when I see defilement in my own life, I can respond differently. When I see defilement in the lives of others, I can respond differently because I have hope, I can give hope. The manger is where we find hope. This table is where we find hope. The Bible talks often about faith, love, and hope. And faith seems to be that relationship with God. And love seems to be that relationship with one another. And hope seems to be that thing internally that helps us do it both. This is the table of hope. Where you come and you acknowledge, I am both a victim and a victimizer. And Jesus became my victim. He took my place as a victimizer. And I can live in the joy of my salvation. But more than that, I can give that joy to somebody else. Let's pray.